also run our Conversations with Jesus series, and here it's Palm Sunday today, and we think of Palm Sunday, we think of that day when Jesus enters Jerusalem, and the people are shouting out, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As we think about that scene and these people falling down before him and laying their cloaks on the ground and palm branches in their hands, we have to ask the question, what was going on in their hearts? What was going on to have so many people assembled together that they would have this kind of an emotional, full-bodied response to Jesus Christ? And what they knew about Jesus is what they had experienced from him all along. You see, much later in the Gospel of John, Jesus would enter into Jerusalem But long before that, he would talk with this Samaritan woman, and he would talk with many other people. Many other people would witness what kind of a God, what kind of a person this this one Jesus was. And they were sure that Jesus was different than anyone who had ever lived. Each person who gathered there, who was crying out, Hosanna, son of David, understood that Jesus had a different way of seeing people. He had a different way of seeing people, and they had been seen by Jesus. Jesus had a different way of seeing people, and he had a different way of providing life to people like no one had ever encountered before. And so as we think about Palm Sunday and being there in that crowd, one question we need to ask ourselves is this. What has our experience of Jesus been like? You know, for many of you who gather here today, maybe you're watching Um, Your experience of Jesus is mixed with your experience of the church. And for many of you and and many in our community, your experience of the church has not been like what you would hope. Uh, You have hurt that has accrued over time. Maybe you've been hurt by the church as an institution. The church itself has hurt you by some of the decisions that we have made, that, that other churches have made. If that's the case, then I'm, I'm really sorry for that as a pastor because our goal, our calling as ministers of the gospel, as the church of Jesus Christ, is not to perpetuate hurt. It's to perpetuate the light of Jesus Christ. And so that may be something that you have to kind of um, overcome today. You have to bring your hurt that you've experienced from time in the church or time as a Christian into this conversation with Jesus. Um, others of you may have not been hurt by the church per se, but you've been hurt by other believers to the point that it makes it difficult for you to, to disassociate your experience from other people with the person and work of Jesus. And so that's, that's real. That's something that you have to do. You have to bring in that hurt that you've experienced into this conversation with Jesus. You have to bring that in and ask yourself the question, who is Jesus? Does he see me? Does he see me? Does he give life to me? Does Jesus love me? You know, others of you have been hurt by the church or by other Christians, and it's been hurt that's based on race. Uh, If you bring that kind of hurt in this morning, then this is a passage that will minister to your soul. Others of you have been hurt by the church or by other Christians or by other people in the world because of your gender, because you're a woman, or maybe even because you're a man. And and you bring that hurt into this conversation with Jesus, and this passage is also a beautiful one for you. Others of you come into this passage, and like maybe some of those who were there in Jerusalem, I'm sure, you had your questions, and you had 
actually your doubts, that Jesus might actually really love you because of sins you've committed or this kind of litany of life that you've lived, and you just really wonder if Jesus really knew about you, would he really love you? You know, yesterday I was walking out in the community, and I was praying, and, and we met a few people, um, and, and as I asked people the question, um, do you have a, a church, do you have a home church, it's interesting the response that you get, and there's a, a variety of reasons for that, but some of the responses you get are, you get this justification of all the reasons why they haven't been to church, and you know what, I mean, for me, um, I, I care that you come to church, but I care about you as a person. I, I, I really, like you coming to church every Sunday really isn't my biggest concern for you. My concern is, is for you, and, and I feel this way, you know, when, you, when you're around Jesus, what Jesus really cares about and what you see here with this woman is that if you've been hurt by religion or by you've been held by some standard that, oh, I went to church this many times or I went through this class, and you've been hurt, though, later on by this experience of, how much you need to do to be a Christian or be in church, then this passage is for you as well. Because this woman that we see and we encounter also tried to find her identity in religion. And so we have a lot here. We have a lot going on in this passage. And what I want you to encourage you to do is not to set all that aside and, and try to um, just kind of like act like all that didn't happen and all that hurt didn't happen. I want you to hold it in your heart and in your mind. I want you to bring it in. I want you to bring it in to Jesus in this passage. I want you to bring that in and ask the question the whole time, what does Jesus see? What does Jesus see and how does Jesus love? What does Jesus see and how does Jesus love? So Jesus had a new way of seeing and he had a new way of living. First of all, we're going to look at a new way of seeing. You know, as Jesus arrives in Sychar, this town, Though this was his first trip to this town, it was not the first time he had ever kind of looked in on what is going on in Sychar. You see, Sychar actually, in this time, that was the name of this town. But in the Old Testament, the name of this town was is a name called Shechem. Now, Shechem, if you've read your Old Testament, is kind of a famous place. There's a lot of things that happened in this town or this city called Shechem. And so Jesus, who... Though here in the incarnation, this is his first trip into Sychar, he, as the second person of the Trinity, had been looking in on the goings-on in this town for a really long time. You see, Shechem is where Abraham, in Genesis 12, 7, it's the first place where Abraham went into the promised land. And the original promise that God had given him in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to give you this land, Shechem is the first town that Abraham is in where the Lord appears to Abraham and reconfirms this promise to Abraham that indeed I will make you a blessing to many nations and I will give you this land. Then later on, Abraham's grandson Jacob would, would be there and he would dig a well and he would give that well to Joseph, we learn in this passage. Joseph then, eventually, the people of God go to Egypt and they are enslaved in Egypt. And Jesus saw all of this second person of the Trinity, he saw and he looked down and he saw God's people trapped in slavery. Then later on in Joshua 24, also in Shechem, is a, a very important event where the people of God, after entering back into the promised land, would reaffirm the covenant, where they would say to God, now that you have been faithful to us, now that you have given us this land, we will be faithful to you. We will be faithful to keep 
all of your commands, God, because you have been so good to us. And Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was there, and he saw in Shechem that promise that God's people made. But of course, God's people did not live up to their promise. Of course, we, as a part of God's people, though God has promised life to us through Abraham originally, promised to make a great nation of us, promised to bring us into his family, though he's given us this promise, yet we go and we live in slavery. We go and we live in slavery. We're enslaved to our sins, and we do not keep covenant. And Jesus sees all of this. You've got to see that when Jesus, it feels like a detour to the disciples that he's going to Sychar. But Jesus knows the, the importance of this place as well as he enters in. And he enters into this conversation with this woman, not as a detour, but as a fountainhead of redemption. That through this conversation and many more conversations like it, he is going to fulfill the promises to Abraham. He is going to free us from slavery. He is going to keep covenant for us where we were unfaithful. We as unfaithful people needed a redeemer, and Jesus comes in in this very same location in order to bring us the gospel. And so this is not a detour. It's not off the beaten path for Jesus, even though the disciples didn't want to go there and didn't understand what he was doing. Jesus had plans and his plan was to have a conversation with this Samaritan woman. And so Jesus has a new way of seeing. He sees all of history, and he sees this woman. You know, I attended a, uh, a celebration of life service for one of my mentors several weeks ago. And testimony after testimony of this man who's now with the Lord and in his presence is that this man, Jay, had the ability to see the whole world. He sent a lot of missionaries out to the world. That was his job. But when he was with you, person after person would say that when Jay was with you, he saw you as a person. And so he could hold the whole world kind of in his scope, but when he was sitting with you, it was like you were the only person who mattered. And of course, Jay learned this. He was not nearly as good at it as Jesus was. And so Jesus could see everything in the whole, all of redemptive history, the whole world, and he could see this woman and zero in on her in this moment. He had a different way of seeing. The first thing that we see about his way of seeing here is that he's having a conversation as a man, as a rabbi, with a woman. With a woman who was a stranger, at least uh, she was a stranger to him from her perspective, although he already knew all about her. So it's hard for us to imagine the significance of this today in Western society. Uh, you as a woman um, might feel comfortable meeting with me as a pastor one-on-one -on -one and having a conversation, but men and women have conversations with each other all the time. That's, that's pretty normal now in our society that we would interact at a professional level and personal level as male and female. But at this time, particularly for a Jewish rabbi, this was just not done. This boundary marker of gender was so high was so elevated that there's no way that a Jewish rabbi, especially alone, would meet with a woman, a woman that did not know him, a woman who, that he, presumably, when he starts the conversation, did not know. But Jesus had a different way of seeing that was radical. So for Jesus, gender, maleness or femaleness, was not the ultimate marker of someone's identity. Jesus saw through this and saw this woman created in God's image, created in his image, if that blows your mind enough, 
created in his own image, here's this woman sitting here broken by the fall in need of living water. And so he engaged with her. And so if you are someone who's experienced um, discrimination or you've experienced brokenness over the fact that you are a woman, particularly maybe in the church, you've got to understand that Jesus loves you and he sees you. Even if you've been mistreated, um, even if you have not been um, cared for or seen in the ways that you should have been, Jesus sees you and he cares for you. Jesus had a different way of seeing that was radical. So that was the first thing. He, he looked through the fact that she was a woman and saw her as a created in the image of God. The second thing that jumps out in this new way of seeing is that Jesus, a Jew, is having a conversation with a Samaritan. Now, a textual cue comes out in verse 9 where John just straight up says, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. But beyond associating with her and having a conversation, he actually asked her to pour him a drink. Now, again, it's hard for us to understand how significant this is, but this would have been totally not ever done at that time for a Jew to ask a Samaritan, particularly a woman, to, to pour a drink for him. It was never done, particularly a rabbi, because what would have, that would have meant on Jewish interpretation of the law at the time is that if a Samaritan touches your cup or your bowl or your water or anything, then you are ceremonially unclean. And rabbis in particular did not want to be ceremonially unclean because they couldn't do their job. No one wanted to associate with Samaritans because they had to spend time going through a cleansing ritual so that then they could be in God's presence. But for Jesus, he saw through all this. He saw it was, it was bunk. It wasn't real. He saw this woman and what she needed was to have living water. She needed to have a conversation with him. So for Jesus, race was not the primary ultimate way that you identified a person. It was important, of course, he saw that she was Samaritan. But what he saw as he saw through this, and he saw that this woman who is a Samaritan is created in his image, regardless of race, if she was Asian, Latino, black, white, whatever, for Jesus, he loves, he has a different way of seeing. It's not formed by cultural norms. He sees through, he has his own culture, and he loves this Samaritan so for you, perhaps, I heard this week of a terrible story, not in our church, thank God, but of a, a story of a Latino man who was racially abused in his church for being Latino. And it was explained away by church leadership in some way. And it's just ridiculous. This, shouldn't, this should not happen in church. It shouldn't happen anywhere. But this, this kind of thing fires Jesus up. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's, it's not Christian. Jesus sees you. He sees you. He loves you. I mean, white, black, Asian, Latino, for Jesus, he loves you. You're created in his own image. He sees you as an image bearer. If you've been hurt by the church because of racism, then you need to understand that Jesus sees you and he offers you living water. And finally, there's a different way of seeing here that's radical that is beyond the fact that she was woman, a woman and a Samaritan, it had to do with uh, her life, her lifestyle. Uh, you see, this Samaritan woman, uh, for a Jewish rabbi, particularly knowing what Jesus already knew about her, because he was God and he could see into her heart and see all about her, 
Uh, he would not have associated with this particular kind of woman. Normal Jewish rabbis would not have uh, had a relationship or entered into a conversation with her, particularly alone. Um, there's no way. But Jesus had a different way of seeing, and he saw her moral disobedience, her sinfulness, and he still loved and he's pursued and engaged. In fact, it's because of her brokenness and sinfulness, Jesus responds to her knowing that what she really needs, what she's really looking for is him. And so Jesus brings out in their conversation that she previously had five husbands or intimate sexual relationships with five men at least, and therefore she had gone through five divorces what is more, she's now living with a sixth man. Now, even in today's society, that would be looked down upon, being married five times and on your sixth marriage. But 2,000 years ago in that culture, it would have been completely unheard of. I mean, we're talking about an anomaly here where she would have been looked down on by so everyone. She would have been ostracized. In fact, the reason why she's probably going to get water in the middle of the day, which is about noon, when the sun is the hottest, she's by herself. Women went together, just like women go to the bathroom together today. Women went to the well together back then, right? And so women don't go by themselves to the well. The reason why she's alone is because she is outcast. Because of her sin, because actually some of these women may be worried that she might be coming after their husband next, she is not seen in any kind of social standing. She's alone. And so she's there alone, and Jesus takes initiative with her. And, and she later says it's not just the, the sexual relationships that she had that Jesus knew about and the broken marriages. At the end of the story, she says, come see the man who told me everything I ever did. So his knowledge of her life, at least from her perspective, was so thorough that, that she understood that he knew everything about her, everything. And yet he still moved toward and still loved. And why? Why did he do that? Because Jesus' new way of seeing was radical, certainly different than any other rabbi at the time, but different than any other person that's ever lived. Because for Jesus, Jesus is holy and perfect. And so for Jesus, whether you are really, really sinful and, and do all kinds of things by the moral religious standards, or you're gen you've generally done some good stuff, but you've fallen short in other ways, at least from your perspective, Either way, compared to God, you don't measure up. You're not even close to where you were supposed to be when you were created in his image. And so he sees all of that. He sees the moral religious charades, and he sees the people who have just given themselves over to sin. And he says, I see all of you, and I move toward you with love. He has a different way of seeing that is different than any other person who had ever lived. And so he saw this sinful Samaritan woman as a person created in his image, and he engages with her. He saw Abraham stop there. He saw Jacob and Joseph stop there. He saw the people of God in Joshua 24 stop there. He saw this woman stop there. And Jesus has this comprehensive view of brokenness. And he says, I'm the only one who can do anything about this. I'm the only one. I see it uniquely. I see the world. I see this individual person who represents all of us. I see humanity. I see the image of God broken. 
And so he engages. He has a different way of seeing. And so then he introduces us to a different way of living. That's the second point this morning. As Jesus sees through us, he finds us. We have these needs. We're all somewhere on the bell curve of brokenness. You're somewhere, but wherever you are on that bell curve, you're broken. Nobody gets, nobody's figured it out. Nobody meets the standard of God on their own. Nobody has it all together, not even close. And so we as humans try very hard to believe that there are other places that we can look for in life that will make us whole. We desperately want to believe that there's something I can find, I can I can do some relationship, I can be involved with some religious activity or something I can do that if I plug that into the God-shaped void of my heart, as Blaise Pascal put it, then it will make me go. That, That missing thing is something that can be found and put in, and it's something that's in this world that's created. And and it just doesn't work, but we still try. And here's some places we look for life outside Jesus like this woman does. The first place this woman looked to find her wholeness or meaning in life was in relationships. And particularly, she looked to relationships with men or uh, someone of the opposite sex. And she looked to find wholeness in this relationship. But even though she wanted love, what she received was estrangement. She wanted to be valued, and she received shame. And we often try to find life in our relationships, too. We look to someone, maybe it's a girlfriend or a boyfriend, or maybe it's our spouse, or maybe it's a really good friend, and and we put so much hope in that relationship. And we think that if we can just make this work, make this relationship with this boyfriend or girlfriend or our, my marriage work better or this friendship or whatever it is, or maybe it's a relationship even with your parents, that you just think, you know, if I can make this relationship work, then I will be whole. It will make me okay if, this, if I can figure out how to get this to work right. And we find that we put all of this pressure on this person or this group of people, but actually they do not make us whole. Actually, they cannot make us whole. Actually, that kind of pressure, particularly in marriage, is not, it's not going to work. Your spouse is not created to make you whole. That whole Jerry Maguire, you complete me thing is not true. Okay, it doesn't, it's not true. <laughs> your spouse can't complete you, your girlfriend, boyfriend. No other person can complete you besides Jesus Christ. The second place that she looked for life outside of Jesus uh, was religion. Now, even though this woman was living immorally, she was at the same time religious. I I find that really interesting. I grew up in the deep south where, you know, you could party on Saturday night and go to church on Sunday, and that was pretty pretty much normal. Um, And apparently for this lady it was too. Like she, on the one hand, was desperately trying to find life in relationships. On the other hand, desperately trying to find life in religion. And she was all about it. She She was trying to go and do all that she could. And she had this whole system worked up in her mind of how she needed to worship and where she needed to worship and this kind of theology of worship that she had cooked up about where where she needed to to be and what she needed to do. And uh, and she was looking for life in religion. And, And for you, if you're looking for life itself, if you're looking for wholeness from going to church or being involved in religious activities themselves, that, that bare sense of just getting involved in church, 
I'm telling you that that's not where life is found. Life isn't found in doing a bunch of religious activities and filling up your schedule with religion, with religion, all this kind of thing. Life is found in Jesus alone. Life is found in Christ, and Christ is the center of our church, but you can go to church and kind of get involved in a bunch of stuff and think that that is what gives you life, but actually Jesus is who gives you life. So all of those things that you get involved with, you need to be asking yourself the question, is Jesus at the center of this? How am I experiencing Christ in all of these things that we have going on in the church? But in verse 22, this Jesus tells this woman something really interesting. And he, he tells her that what's actually happening as she went to the temple and was going through these religious rituals was that she was worshiping a God that she did not yet know personally. What this means is that she was seeking, she was desperately trying to find that wholeness, and she was looking kind of close to the right place. Uh, She was trying to find it in religion, but Jesus is saying, you're looking for something, I can see it in you, but you haven't found it yet. But now, actually, that, that person that you've been looking for actually is looking for you, because I'm here. Jesus says, you've been looking, and now I'm here, and I am finding you. This is God's way of giving life to us. Jesus finds us. So we have other ways that we look for life, and as we're looking for life, God is looking for us, and Jesus finds us. And so Jesus shows her that the wholeness in life that she's seeking after can't be gained through relationships or religious self-effort. It has to be gained a totally different way totally different way. And Jesus calls it, calls it living water. He says, if you knew the gift of God, in verse 10, if you knew the gift from God, who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Simply put, he says, if you knew what I have to offer you, you would have asked me and I will give it to you. And what is that gift of God, that living water? What is it? That gift of God elsewhere is called grace. Grace is is something that you get that you don't deserve. It's something that you can't work for. As soon as you work for it, it becomes a wage. Grace is the gift of God that comes to us. It's unmerited favor from God that comes to us, not because of anything that we ever do. In fact, it comes to us in spite of all those things that we have done. That gift from God of grace comes to this woman, this woman who is a Samaritan, who is a sinner, who desperately needs God's grace. She did not need another to-do list. She did not need another religious map of where to go and what to do. She didn't need any of that. She tried it all. She was dedicated. She was dedicating to finding life in relationships, and she was dedicated to finding life in religion, and she hadn't found it at all. And yet Jesus finds her, and in that place that this woman is in, he gives her his grace. Now, how do you receive a gift? Well, the only way to receive a gift is to reach out and take it, like drinking water. The only way if you're thirsty, which I kind of am right now, actually, to be honest, this is not a prop, but this kind of reminded me. Um, ooh, thank you. But um, if you're thirsty, you have to drink it. You have to drink the water. And so, obviously, at a well, you can do that. You can actually get water and drink it. But how do you drink in grace? How do you take it in? 
Well, you take it in by faith. You take it in by faith, by believing. This woman had to put her trust, her real trust, into the words of Christ, into the grace of Christ given to her. She had to believe that Jesus and his grace actually was what she was after this whole time. It was what she'd been looking for all along. And at first, she, the jury was kind of out. Like, she was, she was thinking through it, and she was trying to, to see, like, is this, really, is this really the Christ? And she even says there, I think it's in verse 29, could this be the Christ? So along the way in the conversation, she's kind of getting there, but she's not all the way there. She had gone from seeing Jesus as a Jew at the beginning to a good teacher to a prophet in verse 19, but she hadn't crossed over to seeing Jesus as the Messiah. So in the conversation, she's trying to figure out who is this guy? Like, okay, he's a Jew. I know that much. Okay, he's a teacher. That's clear. Okay, he's a prophet for sure. Could this be the Christ? And the more she got into it with him, the more she listened, and the more she began, he began to tell her about herself and see through and see her, she began to actually be filled with hope, and she began to actually contemplate, could this be the Messiah? Because it's one thing for a man, for anyone to say, look, I give you living water. That's pretty unique. I don't know many other people that have said that. But in some ways, so what? Does this guy have the power to actually give me living water? Can he actually give me this, this wholeness that I need? Why should I believe him? Could this be the Christ? And this is where Jesus reveals his messianic identity for the very first time. First of all, let's just take a step back real quick. How unbelievable is it that of all the places where Jesus is going to tell someone who he is, that he does it here, right here, with this woman. This woman who altogether would have been the very least important person from a societal standpoint, she has zero social capital according to the world. And yet he says, this is who I am. You know, when politicians come to town, this woman doesn't get invited. This woman doesn't help anyone get elected at all. But yet Jesus doesn't care about that, obviously. He comes in and he engages with her. He loves this woman. And he says, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. And now she's like, whoa, I've got a serious decision to make. Is he? Is this the Messiah? Is this the Christ? And she goes from saying, could it be the Christ? And then by the end, she is going and she is telling them at first, said, come listen to the man who told me everything I ever did. And then she goes, and she did believe, she did put her hope in Jesus in the end. She did actually become this unlikely emissary of salvation to her own town. I mean, these people who didn't care what she had to say a little bit earlier now really care what she has to say because she's obviously been changed. And I'll, I'll close with this. You know, for us, the task is first of all to contemplate, do I understand how Jesus sees me? Other people may have seen me like, like this woman has been seen by her community and they have put her in a box and they have said, you are worthless. And going back to the sermon last week, 
no one was filled with more societal shame than this woman. Jesus doesn't care about all that. Jesus cares about her, and he engages with her, and he loves her. He had a different way of seeing. He had a different way of living. He had a, a life to offer this woman that was totally different, that was radical, and she actually becomes the first one to understand the messianic identity of Jesus and to go into her town, which is what? Which is Sychar, which is Shechem. She goes to her town where all these people live in this historic place, and she becomes the first missionary. But listen to this, and I'll close. Jesus says in John 4, 35, he says, Do you not say yet, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. You know, the goal of this passage is not just that you would be seen by Jesus and that you would receive the new life of Jesus, is that you would begin to see like Jesus and you would begin to experience the life of Jesus. Because there are a lot of people in Cary and in the community around, wherever you live, who, when Jesus looks at them, he looks at them in a different way than you do. He looks at them and he sees them in a different way than you do. He sees that they, this is a, a field that is white with harvest. He sees these people that are created in his image who in various ways, just like you and me, no different, are broken. We're on the bell curve of brokenness and Jesus wants his gospel to be known to them. The fields are white with harvest. Later on in that passage, I love this, he says, um, the next verses, he says, for here the saying holds true, verse 37, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor for. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. To tie it back to the beginning, I think that Jesus saw all of those who had come before him, and yet he was the greatest, <laughs> for sure. But he saw all the promises to Abraham. He saw Jacob. He saw the well there. He saw what it represented. He saw the people of God. He saw all the work that had been done before to get to this point. And he says, I am the fulfillment of all that. I, I am now reaping the harvest that other people have labored for throughout history. And when you go out and you meet people, don't assume that you're the only person that's ever met them before who has had any kind of a significant spiritual influence on their life. Maybe you are, but maybe not. Maybe God has been at work all along. The fields are white with harvest. And as we move into Good Friday and Easter this time of year, let's remember that. Let's remember that Jesus' way of seeing is different. He sees you differently. He gives you life in a different way. But Jesus sees the world differently. He sees giving life to the world differently. And may we be affected and changed and transformed by the seeing and by the life of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, for every single one of us, we come in here and we're on the bell curve of brokenness, and there's, all of us have places we're looking for life outside of you, like this woman did. And Lord, in this moment, we uh, know that we feel called to lay that down and to instead embrace your grace, the grace that truly satisfies us, Lord God. So I pray today for anyone who is um, 
maybe they've never received your grace. Maybe this idea of a gift of God that is grace, uh, instead of um, instead of being received by you based on good or bad things they've done, um, which is a a real hole to live in. I pray that they would understand that you do offer them grace, grace unmerited. Um, And I pray that for anyone who's never put their hope in you before, that this might be a day when they would do that, Lord. I pray for all of us who um, may be here, others of us who may have received your grace before, but we recognize that we really haven't been living in light of that grace. So we pray that that grace would affect us, would change us, would transform us. Uh, Lord, first in the way that we live before you, believing the only reason why you love us is is because um, of your grace to us. Um, But also may we be changed by that grace and learn to see the world in new and fresh and different ways. I pray that this Easter week, this Holy Week, would be a week when we are um, even more dramatically changed than we have been by your gospel in fresh ways. I pray in Jesus' name.